Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. Russia has pushed Ukrainian forces back from the center of Severodonetsk, the crucial city to Russia's goal of gaining control over the entire region. This week, Pope Francis weighs in on accusations that he is pro-Putin in a wide-ranging interview with the editors of European Jesuit journals. Then he turns his focus to U.S. traditionalism and how he sees polarization in the church as being rooted in a failure to accept Vatican II. I'm Colleen Dully. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New Orleans, Jerry. Good afternoon from hot, hot and sunny Rome, Colleen. I feel that. And every day brings a surprise. When I opened my paper this morning, La Stampa, I found two pages devoted to the Pope and his interview with 10 Jesuit editors of European Jesuit magazines. That's right. These are basically our counterparts in Europe. So America is a Jesuit review of faith and culture. It's run by the Society of Jesus. And there are magazines like this all over the world. And so the Pope had a meeting on May 19th with the editors of the European Jesuit journals. And that interview just came out today. It's really wide ranging. So we're going to cover just some of the basics of it. And the first thing that we wanted to talk about was that the Pope speaks at length in this interview about the war in Ukraine. So Jerry, do you want to just run us through what the uh, basic standout points on this were? Well, one of the striking things he said to me was the t- Third World War is now declared. He's been saying for a long time that it's being fought piecemeal. So what does it mean that he says it's now declared? He's speaking to the editors of European Jesuit Reviews. And he said, well, we're all very close to Ukraine, so we feel it more. But he said, we can't forget that there's conflicts in other places. And he mentions the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where he was due to go in three weeks' time and had to postpone. He mentioned Nigeria. He mentions Myanmar and other places. He said, I said once we had Third World War piecemeal, but now the world is at war. We have a declared world war. So it is a shift from scattered conflicts to something that is now involving the whole world. And can you talk about why he sees this as being a world war and not just a war between Russia and Ukraine? Because there are more than 40 countries involved. I mean, at the NATO meetings now, you have more than your 40 countries, but you've also other countries which are not part of NATO, which are involved because the price of gasoline is going up. The price of food is going up. You go to the market, the price of vegetables is going up. And there are people who can't get grain and food. And Francis sees this is a war that's affecting the whole world. 
and producing refugees. Mm-hmm. He sees it as these countries being at war too. But he said, we're seeing for the third time in Europe, World War I started in Europe, World War II started in Europe, and now we see the Third World War. In the interview, he specifically mentions that this kind of set of three world wars that he sees is fueled by the arms trade, which is another way in which many countries are involved in this war who are not directly fighting in it. Yes, he noted the interest in testing and selling weapons. And then he says, we see the brutality and the ferocity with which the war is being carried out. And he says, but then we've asked ourselves, was did something provoke it? And could it have been prevented? So he, he looks back as well. Right. He echoes again what he said before about NATO barking at Russia's gate and that being something that contributed at least to why Russia wanted to invade Ukraine. And this was a really unpopular line for him to say, especially in the West. It was not received well. They they don't see, you know, Russia's attack as having been provoked. There was an editorial in the Wall Street Journal saying that Pope Francis blames NATO for the war. And so the Pope returned to this and spoke a little more about it, but he he kept the same line. What got lost, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, was his word, perhaps it was provoked. Hmm. Today, he says not prevented. And today he reveals a little more. This statement about NATO barking at the doors of Russia, he said, it was the, he was quoting the remark of a head of state who told him that two months before the war started. Right. He doesn't reveal who this was that said it to him, but he said he met with a head of state who is, he characterized this person as a man who, you know, does not speak very much uh, and who is very wise. I mean, has anybody gone through and dug through his meetings to figure out who this was? Well, he's meeting heads of state, I don't know, two, three, four a week. So All the time, yeah. You would have the embarrassment of choice. Mm-hmm. But the presumption is that it is a European head of state. All right. We won't get into speculating about that, but let's talk about this. So he addressed head on this insinuation that he is pro-Putin. And what he said was, I'm going to read the quote here. Someone may say to me at this point, so you're pro-Putin. No, I'm not. It would be simplistic and wrong to say such a thing. I am simply against reducing complexity to the distinction between good guys and bad guys without reasoning about roots and interests, which are very complex. Let's unpack this a little bit. Francis says, you know, we have a tendency to simplify everything. And of course, this is true in the television. It's true in the the radio. It's true in the podcast as well. We try to simplify for the audience. But Francis says, I'm against reducing complexity. He's referring to the complexity of how this war emerged. So, of course, the whole world is blaming Putin for the war, except those who are supporting Putin. It seems like a really cut and dry case of good guys and bad guys. I mean, that's part of what makes this war so easy to be supportive of Ukraine in, right? I see Ukrainian flags all over my neighborhood because it's very easy to see, okay, there's a bad guy, Russia, and there's a good guy, Ukraine. Yes, but Francis sees that there's a complexity to the war. And indeed, in a message that came out today for the World Day of the Poor, it was the Vatican published it today, he goes a step more. He speaks about a superpower which want to impose its will on another nation against the the right of the self-determination of peoples. He can't be more explicit than that, I think. So Francis is looking at various angles. And in fact, he's becoming more and more critical of what's happening. And then 
there's a whole other side. He praises the heroism of the Ukrainian people. And he said they have a history of slavery. If we think back to World War II, Colin, I think four million Ukrainians were killed. And practically nobody speaks about it. Francis praises the women. He praises the, the people of the Ukraine, the courage, the heroism, the defending their own country. Yeah, he really heaps praise on the Ukrainians here. We've seen him be very critical of Russia. It's surprising that even in the midst of all this, just trying to understand Russia's motivations as anything beyond Putin being a really bad guy garners so much criticism of the Pope. Also last Sunday, he spoke about people getting war-weary. And in fact, you look at the papers now, the war is disappearing from the front page, is getting a paragraph on the front page. And Francis wants to shake people and say, we can't get accustomed to the war. And then our response, our sympathies fade. Right. And he offers a way for Jesuit journals in particular, the people he's talking to, to keep interest or at least to to make the war really resonate with readers, which is that he says, we need to deal with the human side of the war. I have a quote here. It is all very well to make a geopolitical calculation to study things in depth, but also try to convey the human drama of the war, the human drama of the cemeteries, the human drama of a woman who receives a knock on the door and it's a postman with a letter thanking her for having given a son to the country who's a hero of the country, but then she is left alone. He really emphasized this need for journalism to be grounded in reality. This is something that he raises all the time. And in fact, he kind of interestingly connects it with his definition of heresy, which is taking a part of the truth and mistaking it for the whole. He talks about the the possibility of a human heresy, which is telling part of a story, but making it the whole thing. He says, don't take the theories or the geopolitics of the war and make it the whole story. Take the humanity. It has to be grounded in reality. Yeah. Francis, reality is more powerful than ideas. It's a key idea of Francis. Yeah. It's one of his kind of pillars of his thinking, if you wish. Yeah. And so here he he gives many examples, but the, the central theme is, you know, we've got to get peace. We've got a world at war. And Francis, he feels this. Yeah, that really stood out to me throughout this as he's, I mean, especially in the part where he was talking about just the pain of the women who have lost their husbands. He talks about visiting the beaches of Normandy and seeing all these old women, but it's just the women because their husbands were killed in the war. It's really clear that he, as you've said many times, is is kind of taking the pain of the war on himself. And that, that comes out strongly here. It's interesting, this war isn't it just about secular powers? It's also involved the Christian church, the Christian peoples in both countries and worldwide. And Francis kind of added on at the end of his answer that he had spoken to Kirill for 40 minutes on the 16th of March. You remember, Colleen, we discussed this in the program. Yeah, this is Russian Orthodox Patriarch Kirill, who's been very supportive of Putin. And the Pope revealed earlier that when he had a Zoom call with Kirill, Kirill spent the first like 20 minutes of their 40-minute conversation justifying the reasons for the war. And then in this conversation, he said, when the Russian Patriarch finished, I intervened and told him, brother, we are not clerics of the state. We are pastors of the people. And then he said, I was to meet him in Jerusalem on the 14th of June, but we agreed to cancel that because of the war. And now I hope to meet him in Kazakhstan in September. 
Well, we have to see whether that's uh, the Kazakhstan is between Russia and and China. And there's a big meeting of the heads of the different religions there. We have to see whether that will actually transpire. Jerry, you and I are going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the other big topic from Pope Francis's interview with the editors of these European Jesuit journals, which is acceptance of Vatican II and kind of the desire for restoration to a pre-Vatican II time that we're seeing in the church. Stay with us. Hey, Inside the Vatican listeners, it's Colleen. As we near the end of another great season of Inside the Vatican, we want to hear from you. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please help us out by taking a brief survey about Inside the Vatican. We want to hear about you. What are your questions and curiosities? What do you want to hear more of in the show? Your feedback is incredibly valuable in helping us plan the next season of Inside the Vatican. To take the survey, just visit the show notes on this episode. There you'll find the link, and it only takes a minute. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks for taking our survey. As we mentioned, this was a really wide-ranging interview that the Pope gave to the heads of European Jesuit journals. And one of the other topics that we wanted to focus on in our conversation is the Pope's response to this question about renewal in the church. He didn't quite talk about renewal in the church. He talked about kind of a disturbing trend he sees in the church, which he calls a restorationism that never actually accepted Vatican II. So he says, The council that some pastors remember best is the Council of Trent. What I'm saying is not nonsense. Restorationism has come to gag the council. So here he's talking about this idea that people want to restore the way the church was before Vatican II, but without ever having engaged thoughtfully with Vatican II, as we talk about often, Vatican II is still being implemented. Jerry, what stood out to you in this section? Well, first of all, these were European editors. Mm-hmm. And so he's talked about the church in Europe. He said, I see more renewal in spontaneous things that are merging, movements, groups, mm-hmm. and new bishops who remember there is a council behind them. But what he calls restorationism has come to gag the council. What is restorationism? It means going back to the past. You don't want the new things. You want things as they were before. And he said, The number of groups of restorers, for example, in the United States are many. Mm -hmm. He said, this is significant. It's an interesting because he's talking to Europeans and yet his mind moves to the States where he sees that there is a lot of resistance still to the council 60 years after it has happened. And it's kind of interesting when you raise the the question of he's talking to Europeans here. I mean, a lot of the resistance to the council was centered in Switzerland with Archbishop Lefebvre ordaining his own bishops in Switzerland. But now the Pope sees the problem as being centered in the US. Yes, I think it's because you have a sizable Catholic population. You've also got a sizable media, which is in sync in sympathy with the restorers. And Francis is well aware of that. I mean, he's spoken on the plane about it. And uh, when he referred to EWTN, in also in the meeting with the Slovak Jesuits, when he went to Budapest and Slovakia some months ago, and he's also aware of the resistance of some of the bishops. Because remember, when he was attacked by Archbishop Vigano, several bishops came out to defend Vigano and to support him. 
and few came out to support Francis, even though he's the center of unity and orthodoxy in the Catholic Church. And Francis is aware of this. He's followed closely what's happening in the United States. And so he says, there are ideas, behaviors that arise from a restorationism that basically did not accept the council. It, and then Francis goes to the remark that also Benedict has said, it's true, it takes a century for a council to take root. I mean, we have people, as he's, he refers to Trent, 400 years ago, people are still talking about Trent. Yeah, right. And, you know, we see a lot of this restorationist energy centered around the mass that came out of the Council of Trent, the Tridentine mass. Yeah, but it's around the liturgy. But remember, Colleen, it's also around the dialogue with other Christians and the dialogue with other religions. Yeah, these are the key Vatican II documents that you find rejected among some of these groups. Yeah, but he says, we still have 40 years to make it take root. Right, and I think there's this idea here for Francis, you know, he sees his his papacy as being part of the implementation of the council, right? There's still 40 years to go in the implementation. So it's too soon, in his view, to be able to aim for a restorationism already. It's too soon to be looking back when the implementation is not even finished yet. His whole thrust, his dialogue with the Muslims, his dialogue with the other Christians, his push to reach out to the poor people of the world, he sees all this as intimately linked to the Second Vatican Council. He sees himself as a pope who did not attend the Second Vatican Council, unlike Paul VI, John XXIII, John Paul II, and Benedict, mm -hmm. the first pope who did not do it, but who is deep in his heart committed to it. Yes, right. And Jerry, that commitment goes a step further for the Jesuits. So Francis refers back to the Jesuits' 32nd General Congregation, which was for people who kind of are familiar with the Jesuits now and think of them as a very social justice-oriented order in the mid-1970s was when the Jesuits really intensely took social justice as their focus. And Francis, as a Jesuit, talks to these editors of Jesuit journals about the resistance to that general congregation and to taking that direction. Yes, it's very significant. He, he goes to that 32nd general congregation of the Jesuits because that really moved the Jesuits in a new direction. And the central document of that was our mission today, that's the Jesuit missions today, is the service of faith and the promotion of justice. He, he goes to Father Arupe. He's really been very attached to Father Arupe. Yeah, tell us who Arupe is. He was the 28th superior general of the Jesuits. And he, he was famous. He became famous world around ever before he became head of the Jesuits because he was in Japan in Hiroshima when the bomb was dropped. And he was famous for the work he did there to help the people. And then he was elected in, I think, 1963 during the Second Vatican Council. Then he led the Jesuits in their own transformation, but against some strong resistance. And Francis mentions a Jesuit who came from Spain. He doesn't name him. At least they don't publish the name, who was particularly aggressive towards Father Arupe. I was shocked by this quote. He he quotes this this Jesuit as saying, the happiest day of my life will be when I see them. So Father Arupe and then Father Calvez, who I assume was another of the kind of animators of GC32. Father Calvez was a very famous expert on Marxism. Got it. 
well, this Jesuit says, the happiest day of my life will be when I see those two hanging from the gallows in St. Peter's Square. Yes, it's a, this is surprising and to have it come out in the Jesuit magazines. I mean, we're talking today about the polarization in the church and also in the United States about the polarization. But what Francis is here hinting at was there was deep polarization less than 10 years after the Second Vatican Council. Right. He says immediately after that quote about the gallows, he says, why am I telling you this story? To make you understand what the post-conciliar period was like. This is happening again, especially with the traditionalists. So, I mean, he's, he sees a direct line from, from that to what we have now. Jerry, there's obviously so much more in this interview that we weren't able to cover. So if our listeners want to read your story or the full interview, I will link to both of those in the show notes. One last story we wanted to mention this week is that Pope Francis's scheduled trip to South Sudan and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which was supposed to happen July 2nd through 7th, has been postponed. The Vatican said that Pope Francis's doctors advised him not to go because traveling might threaten the results of the therapy he's undergoing for his knee. This postponement came only three weeks ahead of the trip, which we should mention is a little unusual. But Jerry, I, I want to give some background for our listeners first on what the Pope's hopes had been for this trip to Africa. He was going to two countries where there's conflict. In fact, in these weeks, they've been fighting on the east of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is the country with the largest Catholic population in Africa. And Francis was very keen to go there. The bishops, the people wanted him to go, the hope that he maybe could contribute to diffusing the conflict and lead to peace. Similarly, he was going to go to the South Sudan, where there's a shaky peace process, but which Francis has done everything to try and prop up. And he was going to go with the Archbishop of Canterbury and the moderator of the Church of Scotland to give extra push to the consolidation of peace in that country. Right. Our listeners might remember a few years ago when the leaders of kind of the fighting factions in South Sudan were invited to the Vatican with Archbishop Welby of Canterbury to have a few days of reflection and retreat together. And at the end of it, the Pope bent down with a lot of effort and kissed the feet of these warring leaders and begged them to make peace. So the Pope has really, really put his heart into trying to help this peace process. Let's talk a little about how this affects the people on the ground in these countries. I assume a lot was already in place and planned. What effect does this have on folks who were expecting the Pope? Well, I think the Cardinal Archbishop of Kinshasa summed it up well, Cardinal Ambongo. He, he said, we're shocked. We're desolate. But then he went on to say, but we, we understand we will pray for him to recover and to come and visit us. And we hope he comes and visits us. And Francis, in his apology last Sunday, he expressed his deep, heartfelt sorrow for not being able to go because he really wanted to go. But he said, I am confident with God help and medical treatment, I will recover and I will visit you. So Jerry, you pointed out this is a postponement, not a cancellation. What happens next? Well, I would not be surprised if the same happens to Canada to trip to Canada. He's supposed to go on the 24th of July to the 30th. But given that there's such a short time between the two trips, so we're talking about five weeks away, and watching him having difficulty even standing up right now, having difficulty getting out of the car, knowing that he's still in the phase of therapy, we have to wait and see what happens. I will you know, we don't have a crystal ball, but it would not surprise me if that too were postponed. 
Yes. All right, Jerry. So we'll keep our listeners up to date on the plans for Canada, any plans we hear about a rescheduling of this trip. So for our listeners, you can read more at the links in the show notes and stay tuned to Inside the Vatican. Jerry, I'll talk with you next week. Thank you, Colleen. There's always so much to talk about and so little time to do it. And one very last thing before we go, please take our listener survey. That is the Inside the Vatican listener survey. You can let us know what you like about the show, what you'd like to see changed about the show. We really appreciate it. It helps us so much as we plan the next season of Inside the Vatican. So you can find the link to take that survey in the show notes. It only takes a few minutes. Thanks. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This week's episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn and Ricardo Da Silva. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. Audio engineering by Kevin Christopher Robles. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org and follow us on Twitter at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. To support our work here on Inside the Vatican, please consider purchasing a digital subscription to America Magazine. You can do that at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thanks. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dudley. We'll see you next time. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.